All right. Give them an argument. I'm Ben Burgess. I'm joined by our trusted producer, Jake Tappet, and uh, by a friend of show, um, academic podcaster, Mad About Town, Gene Bajalon. Uh, Lovely to be here, gentlemen. A little, uh, a little later on, well, at the end of the show, uh, we're going to have Professor Jennifer Burgess for our philosophy segment, talk about some of Sam Harris's recent thoughts about the is-ought distinction. And in the post-game, we're going to be joined uh, for patrons by our prodigal producer, Kale. Um, but the main guest uh, this evening is going to be Peter Hitchens. Uh, the, the interview with Peter was recorded a little while back. Um, and it was a uh, crossover with the popular show uh, with, uh, with David Slavic and James Smith. And, um, and we released it to patrons of both shows and then they unlocked it and, you know, we're unlocking it uh, tonight. Uh, fun conversation. I should say uh, Peter Hitchens uh, is, is a good speaker. He's a good writer. He's thoughtful. He's interested. He's also like conservative to the point of lunacy. So uh, we, we have a tweet that he had the other day uh, about being told uh, happy new year's. The, uh, the other very different uh, Hitchens brother says, my response to the weird greeting, Happy New Year, thank you, but I pay absolutely no attention to the New Year. An empty moment, which I associate with the former USSR's failed attempt to abolish Christmas, which is true. The uh, USSR did uh, emphasize New Year's more than Christmas, but I don't think they made up New Year's. I'm pretty sure people were celebrating that for a long time before the October Revolution. But, uh, you know, that gives you some sense of, uh, you know, Again, very smart guy, very interesting guy. I was really happy to be able to talk to him, but it does give you some sense of politics. I mean, it's the war on Christmas, uh, the the long war on Christmas. The long war on Christmas, yes. The long war on Christmas. And, you know, uh, Peter Hitchens is digging himself in for, you know, this, this kind of trench warfare as people <laughs> like you attempt to abolish Christmas, attempt to uh, liquidate Father Christmas, and uh, secularize everything. As, uh, you know, somebody who's uh, of, um, you know, partially uh, partially globalist descent and also is, uh, you know, and, 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 also, uh, and also an atheist, I, I very happily celebrate Christmas. But you know who did it? Uh, Christopher Hitchens, who's a huge Grinch about Christmas. He, uh, he, had a, uh, um, he had a column about that. Um, but a uh, little bit after Christmas, this came out. This is uh, Christopher Hitchens, what he got right, how he went wrong, and why he still matters. Note, uh, as I think some people have not, uh, the phrasing in the second part of the, uh, the subtitle, it's not what he got right and what he got wrong. That's not that interesting. It's what he got right and how he went wrong. That, to me, is much more interesting. In other words... I think if if you're in the uh, year of our Lord 2022, and like you you still think invading Iraq was a good idea, then then I I, I don't know, man. I, I I can't help with that. You know, like like I th I think you know, I think you're just gone. Um, so, you know, making the point that he was wrong about Iraq isn't interesting. Thinking as I try to do in the second to last chapter of the book about how he could start with a lot of premises that are in common with those of us on the, so, you know, anti-war socialist left who hate that position as a very smart, very well-intentioned guy and end up in that position. That to me is a lot more interesting. I very much enjoyed your uh, book. I think 
the reviews, some of the reviews and some of the comments I've read on Twitter about your book do not seem to evidence that the people actually read the book because I think there are two factions out there who are criticizing the book. There's a kind of gatekeeping left faction that is like Christopher Hitchens was uh, the, the fatwa was mm -hmm. proclaimed. He was uh, excommunicated from the left. Thus, we must never talk about him again or discuss any of his work, even though I still think some of his earlier journalistic works is important and mm -hmm. stands up well. I think him critiquing the Clintons at a time where liberals were fawning over the Clintons is extremely important. I think some of the work that he did uh, um, on Mother Teresa. Yes, that's a very good book. Was significant. So I think I think you know I think it's an important he's an important figure to discuss as a journalistic figure. He was a big figure, right? So there are people on the left who want to gatekeep and you know basically accuse anyone discussing Christopher Hitchens as being a crypto fascist or one of these like post left freedom of speech lunatics, etc., uh, etc. Et and then of course there is the new atheist team. <laughs> of uh christopher hitchens whom i don't think they ever moved on from new atheism which seems to me to have peaked at the tail end of the bush administration and those guys are kind of living in the past i guess it's like the intellectual version of being an emo so being an emo was kind of cool in the 2000s and there's a bunch of like kids now who are like, I wish I was alive when the emos were around. I would have been such a great emo. So you've got like, <laughs> you've got some nerds out there who are like, man, I'm like, I should have been born in, in, in 1985, so I would have been there for the wave of new atheism. And my bros, new atheism, although understandable given the yeah. uh, context of American politics, less so in Britain, but this was before mm -hmm. the kind of Anglosphere uh, culture war that we have today you know i only picked up on this stuff when i came to america for the first time in 2013 but um yeah like there's a lot of people living in that kind of era and it's kind of lame and and j andrew world is saying i have emo credit i have no respect for emos emos are big babies and they deserve nothing but derision because they just whine all the time sorry emos out there i'm a hater the uh, the eleven year old still in me somewhere uh, is getting pretty upset right now. But uh, I, I remember when when being emo like went out, you know, in between seventh and eighth grade, and that music became uncool, and I had to throw out my you know my good Charlotte and all all, all, the, all those CDs. So, uh, sort of... <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I mean, I think that new atheism made sense. I mean, it did make sense to me. Uh, I'm I'm on. Like I, I have the social media receipts to prove that like in like 2008, I was, I was saying things like, Hey, I'm an atheist. I'm also a philosophy nerd. So I'm, I'm, I, I enjoy arguing about this stuff, but what the sort of new atheists are pushing, you know, like atheism as, as a kind of political movement makes no sense to me because uh, the fact that you share this, you know, abstract metaphysical belief or, or really that you reject one, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, tells you absolutely nothing about, uh, about your politics, right. You know, that they, that, um, you know, because clearly that's a position that's held by lots of Marxists. And also, as I, as I think I say at one point in the book by, you know, some people who are, you know, neoconservatives who'd like to spread secular democracy to Iran with the mm. 
82nd Airborne, and you know, and also by some people who are like uh, libertarians who'd be happy to, you know, if we lived in a world where people were selling their organs for Bitcoin to afford rent. Um, so that didn't really make sense to me, but that's a more uh, abstract kind of critique, right? Like, I think the reason it made sense to a lot of people at the time is that that was a point where the culture war was just completely different than it is now because, and the main reason is that the red team of the culture war, uh, you know, in the years and still it into, you know, Leo Obama uh, was thoroughly identified with like militant evangelical Christianity. Uh, you know, like it really wore it on its sleeve and like they, the thing, you know, like liberals and liberal adjacent people, um, and yeah, sure, libertarians, but libertarians who are culturally on, on Team Blue, right? Uh, had uh, you know their big accusation against Republicans in the in the Bush years wasn't you know these guys are racist. They might also think that, right? But like it wasn't that nearly as much as it is now. It was these guys are theocrats. You know they they, they want to you know bad abortion, put gay people back in the closet, and impose their religious beliefs on me. And so in light of that, I think it made sense to a lot of people to have that be something that really defined their sort of culture war political posture was, was militant atheism. I mean, this is why, you know, like Family Guy, when they were doing, you know, when they were doing the jokes where Brian would say, oh, I like Hillary Clinton, you know, like, like they were also doing jokes where Brian meets one of his girlfriends because they're both reaching for Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion at Barnes & Noble at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it was very much uh, an attractive ideological constellation especially to young people in the 2000s in that context as you outlined i mean i too was i wouldn't say i was a new atheist i'm not as philosophically inclined as you ben or and my knowledge of sort of deep philosophical issues is relatively limited but certainly i was in turkey at that time and this was a period in which uh reactionary islamic nationalism was on the rise and i too was at least I would say definitely kind of new atheist adjacent, although I never really liked some of the combative nature of new atheism, but also some of the some of the critiques of religion as being, you know, having a you know, having a primary role in driving politics, certainly mm. within particular contexts seemed very attractive to people who sort of came out of a milieu that was critical of religion and who were living within particular political contexts within which religious nationalism was becoming more and more powerful. And I think you're absolutely right. People don't remember, obviously, younger people don't remember, but this was the peak of evangelical Christian nationalism. And it was really their failure point because it was, you know, they seized political power, but un were unable to parlay it into a victory in the culture war. And they just basically got ridiculed. But new atheism, really, as much as many of these new atheists have sort of transformed themselves into right-wing Trumpers, new atheism was ultimately a form of idpol in very in, in very much the way that liberal racial politics sort of uh, separates the questions of uh, racial inequity from material conditions and, and exactly, posits yeah. it as pure idealism. New atheism uh, severed the fundamental connection between the material institutions of religious propagation and this abstract idea of religion. And in my older age, I'm like, really don't care what people mm -hmm. believe sort of my my general my general belief system is like i don't care what sort of metaphysics you have 
I'm more interested in your politics. Obviously, for someone like yourself, Ben, you know, having a debate over if does God exist and what are the philosophical arguments people use, that's something that you find interesting because you're a philosopher. But in terms yeah. of having broader applicability in sort of the political struggle, I don't find it particularly uh, relevant, and I'm not interested in propagating atheism. I do a podcast with a Christian and a Muslim. Uh, yeah, well, well, and- I, I, I mean, full disclosure, right? I mean, I, I always um, this is actually very convenient for me because because it always allows me to clarify my position on this stuff very quickly. Um, you know that, like, whatever you know, I do do some sort of public discussion that has anything to do with, with those sorts of issues, you know, does God exist? Is religion the basis of morality? Which is the kind of thing I do sometimes because as you say, you know, I find philosophy interesting. I always have, but whatever I do, I always try to do a little, you know, throat clearing at the beginning about exactly what you just said, you know, that politically, you know, I couldn't care less about your metaphysical beliefs as long as you don't want to impose your religious beliefs on me. We're good. Um, and, and I, I feel much more kinship, you know, with the, the Christian left, you know, that, that I do with, um, you know, the libertarian with, right. you know, yeah, this, you know, secular libertarian, right. Uh, and, uh, and the, you know, my sort of way, you know, uh, excuse for, you know, making that point very quickly is, you know, as I always like list off a couple of progressive Christians that I like, uh, which would include Jennifer Burgess, right? You know, that, uh, I mean, possibly an even closer connection than, than doing a podcast with somebody who's been married to them. I don't know about that, but okay. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But uh, we should get to uh, the interview with Peter Hitchens. As I said, after this is over, um, Jen is going to be on, and uh, we are going to talk about, I think, a less impressive member of the new atheist uh, four horsemen, uh, Sam Harris, and his recent thoughts about the uh, the Azot gap. So uh, Peter Hitchens interview again. You can see me and James and uh, and also David Slavic of the Popular Show uh, on screen. You can you can hear Peter's disembodied voice since he's not using video, uh, but um, but it's it's good uh, it's good stuff. And as soon as it is over, we'll be back with Jen. Um, perhaps I'll start off by by pointing to something that, that Ben says in uh, in the in the new book and and seeing if uh, Peter wants to comment. So um, Ben's book starts with the argument that the the Bernie Sanders left was so put off Christopher over Iraq that when 2016 came along, it failed to make use of the Clinton. Uh, and, uh, and and Henry Kissinger books that, that Christopher had written uh, when it really needed them. Um, Peter, you you uh, you had a, a long running and, and voluminous critique of Blairism uh, in your work. So sort of around the same time that Christopher was launching his critique of Clintonism, I wondered if you saw any kinship there. Not really. I was always puzzled by exactly what drove his passion against Clinton. And so very many things about the Clinton administration were the fulfillment of the cultural, moral, sexual, political, educational left had wanted to happen. And and it were happening in, in the capital city of the United States. And it was always a bit of a mystery to me how we occasionally found ourselves on the same side in thinking that that Clinton wasn't really um, as nice as he looked. 
So I, I, I have to say I never fully understood that. I've, I've tried uh, to, to, to understand quite a lot of the, the differences which I had with him and the differences which he had with some of the left, and I think I've got somewhere with that. But the, the, the virulent hostility towards the Clintons was always a bit of a bafflement and remains one, and I'd be glad if anybody could explain it to me. Well, I, I mean, you know, you, you kind of listed off a bunch of adjectives there, cultural, educational, sexual, uh, but certainly one that wasn't on that list was uh, economic. And in that regard, uh, you know, the, you know, Bill Clinton ran in 1992. Uh, he said he's going to end welfare as we know it. And and he did, you know, he, uh, he, he implemented uh, welfare reform in uh, in 1996, which uh, a certain section of Christopher's book uh, on on Clinton, No One Left a Lie to, is spent with a pretty savage description of the uh, of of what he saw as the brutal consequences uh, of of that and that example. So, uh, I, it does maybe make more sense to me that somebody who, you know, maybe at that point was still just barely a socialist. Uh, you know, but uh, but certainly came from uh, from that background uh, would would see something you know very uh, unappealing in Clintonism. Well, maybe, but I, the thing the thing about Christopher that seems to me to be very striking, which few people pay much attention to, is how generally totally uninterested he was in domestic policy. Really, what didn't drive him in the way that foreign policy did. And I no doubt uh, no, there was there were things to be said about the Clinton welfare policy, and it, it's easy to to attack it. But it I I would never have thought that he would have put that at the head of his his list of reasons for being so hostile to Clinton. And it wasn't something he I, apart from that the, the the chapter that you mentioned. I don't recall him raising it very often, if at all, as a reason for being so hostile. There was something else going on there. Yeah, I, I mean, so so just to just to stick with, uh, you know, you said he, he's uninterested in, in domestic policy, and I, and I, I see don't think you, so. No, I, I I see what you mean, but I mean, I, I think that um, it does it does seem, you know, we could talk also about you know his foreign policy critique of of Clinton in that book, uh, but also one thing on domestic policy that I think, you know, might have, you know, he might've been more interested in that, that economics, he, he wrote a fair amount about it in the, uh, the late nineties uh, was the, the death penalty, which it seems like he had a very strong moral opposition to, he did debates about, he wrote for the nation. And, and so I think that, uh, I think that when Bill Clinton was running for president and he, he actually, um, personally oversaw the execution of, of Billy Ray Rector, who, you know, supposedly was so mentally incapacitated that, you know, he was, you know, that he wanted to save some of his last meal for, for, for later, you know, it, it does, it does make some sense to me that, you know, that that would be. In, in, in yeah. both of these things, it's really hard, isn't it, to reconcile these as major creators of passionate disagreement with his later uh, decision to hobnob with the George W. Bush White House. Oh, I, I agree with that. Yes. The, 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 both the death, death penalty and welfare reform were, were, mm-hmm. were, were not exactly things that they were. Um, they took a, a liberal view on, unless my memory is playing me false. 
No, I mean, I mean, they certainly did not. Uh, I mean, I think the welfare. Looking for stuff... a consistent pattern. I mean, it's not. I, I, I've always mm. found that the the, the, the left wing opposition to the death penalty fades away when it comes to killing lots of people. If you if you were executing one person for individual crime, everyone gets terribly exercised about it. But um, when you start executing or killing lots of your political opponents, that's okay. So I've always yeah. thought it thought it was a bit of a pose in any case, but it, well, it, 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 yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I wanted to. I did want to interject jump. just for a moment. I just wanted sure. to say that sure. um, you can see that most um, most trans uh, apparently when, you, when it comes to uh, trans exclusionary radical feminists, mm -hmm. where you'll see a lot of people who are very much against the death penalty who say kill all turfs. Sure. So, um, you know, this is this is the, the type of of ripe category that I yeah, think that Christopher yeah. would have been all over. We're, we're, get, we're getting into some. Yeah, yeah. Some so, 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 well, here, it's interesting, though, isn't it? I mean, I, it, it's yeah. it, the things which appear to be principles on the left. Mm -hmm. I wrote a, a book once in which mm -hmm. I went into the DN Pritt, Dennis Noel Pritt, the very famous left wing, indeed communist uh, fellow traveling lawyer in uh, interwar Britain. And he was terrifically strong in his opposition to death penalty in the British criminal justice system. But he also defended the Moscow trials, <laughs> uh, many of which I seem to recall ended with the death penalty. So it, it, it is a very curious selective view of, um, of, of, of the matter. Yeah. I, 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 I would tend to lay it to one side. As I say, if, you were, if these were the reasons why he couldn't stand Bill Clinton, why didn't they keep him away from George W. Bush? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think, I think that, that does actually get us into a really interesting question about the extent to which there's continuity between his pre-2001 positions and his positions later. I mean, when George W. Bush was running for president, Christopher, it is called, the, you know, in the nation was, was pretty harsh about him. Uh, but, uh, but that changed uh, because of his, his positions on, on the wars. And I, and I did just want to say, because, you know, a minute ago, you, you, made that comment about uh, mass executions. Uh, but I, I, I would assume, you know, but I think that the, uh, you know, the, the two interesting questions here are, okay, you're talking about people who are apologists for the Moscow trials, but of course, uh, Christopher and, and you, when you, were, when you were a radical leftist, we're not in that uh, in that tradition. No, no, uh, no. I'm just making a general point. The left, the left is quite tolerant of. I mean, Trotskyists have to be tolerant of um, of, uh, of extraordinary things. If you are a Trotskyist, then you have to start making apologies for, for Leon Trotsky, who was no mean fist at the death penalty when it suited him to apply it. Well, in that respect, do you see, um, you know, if Ben's given the sub, part of the subtitle of his book, how how he Christopher Hitchens went wrong? Do do you see a certain continuity in that respect? We we on the left would talk about Hitchens's uh, neoconservative conversion, but is there a respect in which, well, many of the neocons were? former Trotskyists themselves, is there a sense in which there's a continuity? Um, I suppose I'm, I'm thinking, you know, a, a lot of the, the case for the war in Iraq was couched in quite utopian uh, state-building terms. I, I wonder if you ever thought that this wasn't so much a betrayal of the left as a, a kind of continuity with certain oh, oh, habits I, of thought I, in I it. No, I absolutely thought it was a continuity. I think that the the, the what was engaged was a, was a, was quite a major piece of intellectual courage and originality in recognizing that if you were a utopian who believed that the world could be made over again, you mm. uh, could. It was quite reasonable to place much more faith in the in the liberalized 
crusading uh, United States than in, than continuing to, to to mess around with the remnants of of the of, of the failed Soviet experiment or indeed with any other uh, left wing tendency which you know, in terms of major political power had vanished down the plumbing long before then I, I think that you, there was a de- definite uh, transfer of, uh, of of utopian loyalty from from Marxism Leninism to the idea of a, of a, of the of a new liberal world power spreading democracy and Jeffersonian ideas across the planet I, I think I think it's beyond doubt that's what it was and, and to describe Christopher as a neoconservative I think is just inaccurate I mean the, there is a continuity between some forms of Trotskyism and some of the neoconservatives but they also had domestic priorities, which I don't think he was interested in, uh, and indeed would probably have disliked if if, if they'd uh, if they'd come up. Uh, the great cover for all that, of course, was the, the fact that the the offensives launched uh, by the Bush administration were were against Islamist, uh, either terrorists or uh, or power figures, and that enabled him to include uh, his general hatred of religion in this campaign in such a way that his 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 conservative his new conservative allies were able to forget that in fact his contempt for religion also included christianity yeah and one I, I, circle he never he never squared in all this as far as i could see was the was his position on on the israeli state mm. i think he continued to oppose the israeli state and be in favor of the um of, of, of Palestinian cause all the time he was still uh, attacking Islamism in its other forms. Uh, I mean, that's that's definitely true. There, there's you can watch footage from like 2002 on C-SPAN when uh, Christopher uh, is on with with Andrew Sullivan and they agreed about Iraq, but uh, Collar brought up uh, Israel Palestine and uh, and then. Christopher starts arguing with Andrew Sullivan about that because Sullivan, of course, sees that it's the same issue. And, and Christopher says, no, 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 that's different. The Palestinians you know, have a legitimate complaint. Yeah. So so that's that's definitely like an awkward you know, continuity uh, with his earlier politics that didn't quite fit with what he was saying now. But, but I was really interested in what you said about utopianism because uh, it, even though I, I definitely do see uh, more discontinuity than, than you do. I, I think there's something very right about that, that there's that it's that having given up on, on socialism, which which Christopher did sort of formally in letters to Young Contrarian in 2001, um, you know, that this it does seem like part of the impetus for uh, now supporting, you know, what on the surface looks like this unimaginable alteration from his past politics, you know, supporting U.S. imperialism uh, in, the, uh, in the Middle East, uh, does get down but to... Can I just interject yeah. there? Yeah. It's, it's, he would have said, and I, I would mm-hmm. agree with him, that what happened in Iraq was not imperialism. Uh, in fact, had it been imperialism, people such as I would have had a, a much tougher job in opposing it. If, if the United States said, right, well, we're going... Uh, to Iraq, we're going to overthrow Saddam Hussein. We're going to mm. rule that part of mm-hmm. the world ourselves directly as an empire, and, and we'll stay there for the, as long as we have breath in our bodies to do so. Then I would have said, well, that was that would be a, an enterprise which it, which you could consider as you know, something it might conceivably be worth 
supporting from a conservative point of view, though I have to say I'm, I, I, I'm not very keen on it, but it, 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 it would have had a, a conservative nature, but it was never imperialism. It was an intervention, which was plainly stated from the start to be temporary, which was supposed to bring a new form of, of, of life, a new form of politics to mm -hmm. that part of the mm -hmm. world, after which the United States would leave. So it's it's not imperialism. The imperialism of the United States consists in, in, its, in its very, very tight control over the 48 contiguous states, Hawaii and Alaska, which is an empire in, its, in itself. But anything beyond that is, is, tends to me to be a political intervention in other people's countries, which is, is not imperialism and shouldn't be confused with it. Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, that, you know, I don't think it was quite his light on it. There's a, uh, in fact, I, I think if I'm remembering, uh, if I'm remembering right, in your uh, debate with him in Grand Rapids in 2008, yeah. there's, a, there's a moment where in the Q&A, uh, you know, at, at, um, at the end of that, a, a questioner says, basically, at this point, would you admit that, you know, America's venture in Iraq was imperial? And, and rather than deny that it was, he says, okay, sure, it was. And I, I think I think part of this is semantic, right? You know, about how, how we're gonna use the word imperial, but he says, no, it was. But the United States was also an empire when it did, and he listed off all these things the United States had done to support Saddam Hussein in the past. And he said, so it's, it's not, you know, the, the difference is just now it's using this imperial might on what he would regard as the right side, which I think takes us back to your point about, you know, what you call that transfer of utopian uh, ambitions, which is that I think in the absence of a sort of continued belief in the viability of uh, international socialism, you know, he wanted to at least spread in his mind democratic revolution, you know, to these countries. And, you know, what I would regard as the tragic mistake is seeing, you know, like the 82nd Airborne as a, as a potential vehicle for democratic transformation, which I think never really made very much sense. Well, there is a point here about, about whether the United States was itself a utopian concept. And, and, and whether it ever was, whether it was to begin with and then ceased to be, or whether it, under uh, Clinton and after it became one again. And the, certainly, it, it, it certainly was before the French Revolution. Uh, the American Revolution looked pretty radical and revolutionary to a lot of people. Uh, it wasn't all that sympathetic to Christianity. I mean, a lot of the people involved were deists rather than, rather than Christians at, at, at most. Uh, it was extraordinarily anti-monarchist, and the treatment mm. of the of, of the remaining monarchists in uh, the in, in the new United States after independence uh, and after the uh, and after the the victory of the Revolutionary War was pretty harsh. Uh, executions, lynchings, tyings and featherings, people burnt out of their homes, and that's that's why Canada exists. For goodness' sake, mm. it was a much more radical revolution than people think. Uh, and only the, the, the French Revolution coming along afterwards has overshadowed that and made people forget it. And I think it was, it was, it was more the radicalism than the democracy of it that Christopher found uh, appealing, hence his, his preoccupation with Thomas Jefferson. You, um, uh, the, the sense in which uh, Christopher found himself in the minority or very often found himself disagreeing with interlocutors except for the one issue of Iraq uh, there's a sense in which you were a kind of mirror image because your opposition to Iraq was not particularly widely shared on hmm. the right at the time and it's also worth stressing that what might be called uh, your your right um, 
anti-imperialism or at least right uh, anti-interventionism uh, continues uh, to this day where you continue to make yourself unpopular uh, with a lot of people on the uh, the right and, and the centre-left as well, uh, such as on, um, on the issue of Syria. Um, is, is there a sense in which uh, you sort of saw a kind of reflection there that both of you actually were dissenters on your own sides? And could you also say something about how you think your view uh, of the, the British state and, and of Western intervention in general differed from Christopher's, not necessarily in what you wanted to see happen, but in terms of what you thought the motives were. What did you think um, uh, uh, was behind the, the, the push to intervention? Well, I, I think that the, the Bush intervention was, a, was a, a later stage of something which began o, over Yugoslavia. And I was completely perplexed by, by Yugoslavia. I'd, I'd spent so much of my life entangled in the Cold War and the, a far simpler controversy between Soviet power in, in, in Europe and the, and the continued power of the Communist Party and the Soviet Union, things which I had unquestioning, well, I'd, I'd un, un, unambiguously opposed uh, and didn't have any difficulty with. When it came to Yugoslavia, I thought, well, here is a... Uh, sometimes you get a war of the good against the good, and, and what I was, seemed to be seeing in Yugoslavia was a war of the bad against the bad, in which it was almost impossible to take any sides at all. It took me ages to puzzle out what I thought was going on, and I'm still I'm still waiting for a, a decent history of it which might enable us to understand it. But I, it was the Kosovo intervention when I felt very strongly... Uh, that the the British public were being manipulated mm -hmm. uh, into a war in which they had uh, no national interest whatsoever uh, that began my uh, long long walk down the path of, of anti-interventionism. Uh, I just felt that it, this was a mistake. And I also felt that the, the, the quite often it's the nature of the propaganda of my opponents which convinces me that they're wrong. Uh, they're generally the more intolerant and furious people are and the more they're inclined to use emotion rather than reason, the more suspicious I am of any argument. It, later on, after I've been appalled by these characteristics, I, I begin to discover in more detail why it was I was against it. So I'd been through all that with Kosovo and, and made myself unpopular on that, uh, quite independently of, of um, anything else, in an, in an effort to understand the post-Cold War world in which I was... I was a bit lost, honestly, because I'd been deprived of an enemy and didn't really know where to turn. So I don't think uh, there are coincidences in this, but I don't think there was any real uh, dialectic between his position and mine. We, I don't think we spent all that much time examining each other's positions, honestly. I, one question I want to ask, and this is a, comes from a friend of the show called Alice from Queens on Twitter. Um, as we're talking about enemies... Who and this is a question for both of you. Who do you think Christopher's enemies would have been today? Uh, I it's it's the world is so utterly transformed in so many confusing ways, um, and I don't know uh, whether the 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 outcome of the of, of the events in Iraq, which seems to me to have become so definitively. A, um, would have allowed mm -hmm. him to continue uh, to hold the positions which he held um, to the end to 10 years now, almost. Right. 
Uh, I don't know whether he might he might actually have come to some revision, not over the belief in intervention, but over the the, the general belief in intervention, but over his particular support for the Iraq events. I don't know whether that would have changed, for instance. I think yeah. his hostility towards to, towards uh, religious belief would uh, would have continued, and I think in many ways mm-hmm. that is the key position which he probably held from the age of about eleven till the day he died, uh, mm-hmm. utterly consistently and without alteration. Uh, that would have continued. The, the enemies or opponents on that would remain. Uh, but ten years is an awful long time, and in, in in this case, a very intense period in which all kinds of things which had might have appeared ten years ago to be one thing now definitely look like another. And if, for one thing, you can definitely credit him. His mind was always alive. So difficult to speculate, but quite possibly uh, some surprising developments. Yeah, I mean, one, one. I mean, I, I think that both of those sound sound right to me. That you know that the the anti theism would have would have maintained whatever else did or didn't. Um, but uh, and and Iraq, I, I have no idea. You know, I'd, I'd like to think that he he would have uh, seen the error of his ways there, but I'm not confident. But but one other thread is um, that you know two things that happened in those ten years were. Uh, Donald Trump and Brexit, and and in fact the uh, the earlier uh, debate that you had had with him, Peter, in nineteen ninety nine. That's what it was. Yes, yeah, yeah, was years ago, more than twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah, about twenty two years ago uh, was was about uh, essentially Brexit. You know about 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 whether you know about the you know Britain's relationship Uh, to the European Union. I, there you again. You, you, it, it, I, I'm awkward about this. I didn't uh, actually support the um, campaign to leave the European Union through referendum. Um, I, I hate referendum very much, and I thought I didn't uh, either campaign or vote in it. In fact, and I, I try as hard as I possibly can not to use the term Brexit, except to save time. Because I, my own conception of what I, what was important was so completely different from that campaign. Uh, so I would say it wasn't. It was about an utterly different uh, objection to the European Union. My objection to it was constitutional and, and mm. legal. I think an awful lot of that I could have accepted. I'd had no particular objection to. And why should anyone to to pretty extensive economic cooperation with the European Union? And I said many times that I would have perfectly happily accepted staying in the single market and, and taken a Norwegian. Position on this, what I was worried about was uh, particularly English law and the whole, also the whole po- political tradition going back to Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights uh, being forced out of existence. Because if you've got however many countries it, it is in the European Union now, uh, which take a, a Roman law mm. uh, and view of things, and one country, or in fact two, because the Republic of Ireland has a very English legal heritage, uh, taking the the common law and Magna Carta approach, uh, then ultimately it'll be the minority which has to give in. And that's what I fundamentally feared it would change the nature of our, of our whole political and, and, and legal state. And that was what I objected to most of all. And none of that seems to me to have been properly resolved by, by the form of departure that we've had. So it was an argument. 
but don't please don't mix me up with uh, with with what you would call Brexiteers because I don't really have much in common. I don't I don't think Britain should become Singapore on Thames, uh, and I don't believe that leaving the European Union is a sudden great new future of free trade and and wonders. My my objections were were, were political and. and it is interesting to be reminded uh, to be reminded in Ben's book that uh, Christopher had in common with with many um, radical and formerly radical leftists of the 1990s. Perry Anderson was among them. Uh, he, he did more or less uh, take the belief that um, the European Union should be trusted to um, to, to secure. A sort of social liberalism that uh, democracy couldn't be trusted to. Yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, yeah. When in our in our Trotskyist years, and there was a big debate in the International Socialists uh, back in uh, what must have been the early seventies, in which the, the the tendency which said the European Union was not a capitalist ramp but a progressive uh, movement was more or less endorsed. That's what we thought. Uh, that, that it, it was it was seen. And here's a, I've always thought this is fascinating that uh, Daniel Cohn Bendit, the man at the heart of the mm-hmm. 1968 events in Paris, uh, became uh, in time uh, one of the people at the heart of the European project. Uh, the two are, are hugely connected. Uh, that the the a lot of people on the continent and indeed in Britain saw the European Union as a vehicle of, of cultural moral revolution. Also, of course, of the dissolution of the nation state something which which a, a huge number of, of radicals regard as a as a reactionary relic and something to be to be done away with and there there it was this fantastic vehicle mm. still yeah. is I, I suppose i i meant by this that uh, actually this is a iraq wasn't the only major error on christopher's part that the the left today needs to um deal with or reconcile itself to, it was the, the way in which actually um, the left pretty much wholesale signed up to um, a, um, a principle that it, 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 it just did not trust the people, did not trust national sovereignty, uh, and was happy to hand that power over to Europe. I think that that's really something that that's an attitude that that needs to change. And well, I know they may maybe so, but the left doesn't have a very good record on trusting the people, does it? Uh, I mean, who, well, who's, no. ra- who's surrounded? No, the right I'm not going to. I'm not going to find assembly with bayonets <laughs> in 1917. <laughs> it's Can not. We... It, that's not what they do. Well, <laughs> I mean, I would argue that I would argue that democratic institutions throughout Europe were were to a very great extent a uh, a result of, uh, of of left wing and social democratic and socialist uh, agitation, you know, to uh, to expand the franchise, to uh, to to sort of get rid of remnants of the uh, of the Ancien regime. But I will I will I will I'll give you the yeah, constituent that, assembly. Those of us who think that. that Liberty is more important than democracy. Would point out that the European Parliament, so-called, I think only only English-speaking people call it that, uh, but the European Parliament, so-called, doesn't have an opposition. Yeah, I, I, I think is, that, the, the, the fact that people have votes doesn't necessarily mean they get freedom. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I mean, that, like Nigel Farage had done, and I, I'm not like, how can I say this? Like I'm on the left, and you know this, but I think Nigel Farage, when he was in Parliament, the European Parliament, was one of the funnier commentators in history in that he pointed out you know uh you know john paul junker the drunker 
was like a mess. You know, I mean, it was it was one of the funnier things ever. And and I think he he borrowed from your brother in a bit, to be honest. Well, I can't begin. To, I, that I'm afraid makes my mind boggle so much that I'll have to go and lie down after this. <laughs> the idea of putting that Nigel Farage and my late brother were had anything in common at all had never previously occurred to me, and I, I'm going to have to try very hard to. to yeah, I, I, I mean, I have to say, one of the things that, uh, you know, there is a scenario, I mean, going back to Alice's question, uh, that I don't particularly, you know, relish, I, I would have actually found it a little depressing if it had happened, but uh, where uh, you could imagine Christopher having a reaction to some of these events, Brexit, you know, the election of Donald Trump, uh, that would be you know, consonant roughly with what, you know, the United States context would think of as a, as a resistance lid, you know, as, 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 you know, I mean, you can imagine him, for example, having the same reaction to, you know, like the sort of reaction that he reported having to 9-11 about everything that he loved, you know, he loved coming into contact with everything he hated. You know, I, I think it's not, not difficult to imagine him having that reaction to something like January 6th. Hillary Clinton would have been a block to him supporting Trump, though, presumably. That is the uh, problem. To, denouncing it? Trump, I think. Yeah. And that, that, that is the problem. But I think the, the, the difficulty with assessing how anybody would respond to Donald Trump is, is which Donald Trump? I, the man was so fantastically inconsistent in both domestic and foreign policy i think the the, the only consistency um, any consistent position he had was was a, a general hostility i think to free trade but beyond that uh, his zigzagging and veering uh, was such that i don't think anybody could really have uh, anybody serious could ever have formed any position uh, if of of consistent support or opposition to him as a politician you could dislike him and see him as ludicrous as a person and as a head of state but as a politician what was the there to fasten on which you could pr produce a consistent critique of other than uh, that's not a that's not a train i want to get on thank you very much because it looks to me as if it's going to run off the rails i wonder if we could get on to um the the question of atheism i, I don't mm. really see much of a place for atheism in the the younger left mm. that has emerged since uh, the, the Bernie Sanders and, and Corbyn projects, and, uh, and there might be reasons for that. Um, I, 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 in chapter two of Ben's book, it feels, Ben, like you're having the debate about religion that you wish uh, you could have had with Christopher Hitchens, actually. That, that's how I, I read the, the critique of, of Christopher's position there. Um, but, but Peter, what is your recollection of the the so-called new atheist um, sort of phase that that uh, your your brother's work gave such a kind of contribution to? And the second part of the question is: Was it in any way good for Christianity? And was therefore the kind of decline of the fashion for new atheism bad? I, I mean, I'm struck that you know in this COVID period, I, I, I see no kind of public function of religion despite this huge kind of visibility of death um what was new atheism right. good for christianity oh i think it was immensely good because it it, 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 it a lot of people uh, and i am one of them are much happier uh, defending religious belief from its attackers than they are actually trying to proselytize religious belief itself in fact i wouldn't even want to do that 
but it it gave the, the Christian religion and its supporters a very good opportunity to make coherent defenses of their position. It gave them a lot of publicity among people who possibly hadn't thought about it before. So probably, uh, obviously it benefited the publishing industry hugely, uh, but probably I think uh, over, uh, over the whole period of the, the, the anti-theist spasm, I would think it probably benefited uh, the Christian churches quite a bit and, and, uh, and the Christian religion and its supporters by giving them more prominence and allowing them to, to state the coherence of, of, of their position in, in a way that people had previously been rather bored by, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and as you as you point out, you know, I think that um, you know the I think on let's say among liberals and then to the left of that, actual leftists, uh, that atheism is is a much is much less uh, visible now, certainly, you know, than than it was in the two thousands. I, I suspect that. Part of that, and I mean, this is a little strange because we've been talking about Christopher Hitchens, who obviously had the ambiguous position with regard to some of these things. But part of that is that certainly in the United States, the the right that people were reacted to uh, was uh, defined by, you know, George W. Bush and his most visible supporters who really wore Christianity on their sleeves in a way that's that. Uh, there's just no equivalent of uh, in the 2020s, at least in the you know at least in the, the United States, right? They, it's no, um, you know, even though one of one of Donald Trump's biggest support bases, you know, was uh, most reliable voting blocks, you know, was the evangelicals. Uh, certainly, you know, not only did Donald Trump himself never really talk about religion, it's almost unimaginable that he would have. Well, yeah, he, I, th- I think he used to attend that Norman Vincent Peale church. And he, I, I never got the impression he had any uh, any serious religious belief. And it always astonished me that uh, that, uh, that important strands of Christianity in the United States thought that they were wise to, su- to support him. But the, the real danger to to the Christian religion in the Western world is not is not atheism or anti-theism. It's indifference. Uh, I think uh, so many people now are brought up uh, in Britain. I think this is probably increasingly true in the United States now. So many people are brought up in Britain with no knowledge of, of, of the Christian religion whatsoever. Uh, certainly, they don't get Christian upbringings or educations. Uh, it's a matter of puzzlement. And Christopher and I come from one of the last generations, probably were among the last people in the English middle class still to be brought up in a seriously Christian fashion, particularly at school something which has now pretty much disappeared. Uh, and he was, he was fighting a wrestling match against an opponent who was wholly visible to him, but not to anybody else. It reminds me of someone I once saw on the other side of a valley, apparently having a tremendous struggle with nobody, uh, <laughs> blading his fists about and waving his arms. I later on found out that he'd been attacked by a swarm of wasps and was beating them <laughs> off. It's completely invisible to anybody he wasn't close up to. And that's it, it, often the way Christopher looks at me, fighting away against this, the horror of religion. When, in fact, for most people, it's completely invisible and have played no part in their lives. Uh, it, so I'm sorry to laugh because I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, about uh, how many, and this is maybe because I'm terminally online, and I know James is a little less so, and Ben is absolutely, totally poisoned by online, but um, I, about how many people are like revolting against a patriarchy that doesn't seem to exist anymore, 
And, you know, they're like, oh, the desire, you know, the, the pressure to get married and have children, it just doesn't seem to be there yeah. anymore. And uh, I think, yeah. you know, maybe Christopher was ahead of the game on that. Oh, maybe. I think that what, I, I think he performed a very useful function for an awful lot of people who'd, who'd grown up in small or medium-sized American towns where religion was still, the Christian religion was still quite powerful, both at home uh, and in public life, uh, in the in the way their parents acted and talked and behaved. And to have an advocate uh, who was incredibly articulate and obviously well-educated and knew uh, the religions which he was attacking uh, and and could could respond with the biblical quotation and all the rest of it to to those who were supporting it for a lot of people who had come out of those small towns and wanted to live lives free of the of the pressure which they had experienced to to get married have children join the patriarchy uh, it, it it was it was useful because i think the united states has has been going through in the past 30 or so years a a, a de-christianization and he, I think he happened to strike a very important moment in the decristianization when a lot of people wanted, uh, as I say, a, an articulate and coherent and educated advocate against uh, the religious uh, religious figures who dominated their lives up till then. But I think it's gone through that now. And I think that, that if, if you look carefully, you'd find that the Christian religion in the in the United States is much weaker than it was three decades ago. Ben's book is addressed to uh, a younger left who, if they do know anything about Christopher Hitchens, it's derived from uh, the enormous currency that clips from his public debates have on YouTube uh, and perhaps very little knowledge of, of his career or indeed his writings. Peter, what, what do you think people, you know, we're 10 years on from his death, what, what do you feel that people get wrong? About Peter Hitch, uh, about Christopher Hitchens, or, or, or maybe what did they get wrong while he was alive? Well, it's not they get it wrong. It's that they, they see they see only one facet of, of something much more interesting. Uh, I, I think that that he could be um, a superb debater, not always, but he could be. Uh, I think that what will survive is. Uh, is the writing, in fact, not not so much the books as the as, as the great quantity of, of of essays and reviews, which people will look back on in twenty, thirty, forty years time if we're able to do that and say this was really good. Uh, I was notable. I went to his memorial event in New York City. Quite a lot of the people present uh, were obviously what what I would. Stars of fans rather than readers, and they'd come along because they'd seen him on YouTube or or, or, or some other televisual medium or been to a debate. And quite a lot of the event was of people reading out from his work. And those of us who knew him uh, and had known him for a long time, this was familiar to us. But to a lot of them, they were they they heard jokes which I have to confess uh, I might have heard once or twice before, and they laughed at them <laughs> as if they were new because they had not read him. They'd only seen him. Yeah. Uh, so I think he, there, were two, there, there were going to be two separate memories, two entirely separate memories. Those of the people who were completely enthused by the, the anti-theist period and, and loved the, the debates and the, the, the YouTube stuff, and those who read him. Uh, and I have a feeling that, uh, say, the written material will last longer and, uh, and will maybe even uh, have a resurgence, whereas the, the YouTube stuff will, will, as I think it inevitably does, will fade. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that certainly, you know, you, 
you know, you talked about his books, but then also the, you know, the essays and reviews. And, and one thing that on sort of a non-ideological level, you know, I think is really striking uh, reading some of that now is, is just the sort of indication in the decline of standards in, uh, in a lot of media that, uh, you know, Christopher Hitchens wrote for Slate, uh that's that's you know i mean if if, if you've read slate any time in the last like uh you know recent years right it's it's kind of hard to imagine uh anything that's as uh that has the kind of depth you know of of his writing at, at its best or honestly even even the more mediocre examples of his writing uh appear in there that you know that that there was like an audience I guess at the uh, at the time that was interested in uh, these um, sort of extremely historically literate, interesting uh, essays and, and, and even short opinion pieces that had that quality that even if you disagreed with the conclusion, it's oh, okay, that was actually good. That's interesting, right? Like it's the, it's the decline know, of uh, the decline despite of, yourself, yeah, the decline of bourgeois wits as well. Yeah, yeah, that's too. That uh, you guys were the sort of last last generation for that to be inculcated in Peter. I mean, again, it's it's we both of us, him more than me, because I I, I I sabotaged my own education. Uh, but both of us went through the last probably full extent of a of a of an English uh, boarding school and in his case university. Uh, Oxbridge education, which put a, a, which gave gave people an ability to both communicate and think, which I think is so absent now from so much debate, even at supposedly high levels. People who people just can't do it, and, can't, and, and this this endures. But we were incredibly lucky to catch the to catch the end of it because it was being dismantled even as we were going through it, and, and that that is that is one of the reasons why he. Not just in the United States, though I think more so because of the, the perhaps slightly exaggerated respect given to the English accent in the United States, but also in England as well. That that's one thing which which endures. Here is a genuinely educated person who can use the English language to its full extent in a way which hardly anybody can do now. I have a question that slightly departs from um, the the Christopher uh, theme, Peter. Um, if you don't mind, um, we, we've we've just come out of the conference season in uh, UK politics, and um, the a lot of the the coverage of the Labour conference has been a sort of blast from the past in in applauding Keir Starmer for supposedly making uh, the Labour Party fall in love with Tony Blair again. Um, this, I, I think, is is just a kind of mirage constructed by your colleagues in journalism and is hardly deeply felt in the country. But when these kinds of um, uh, returns or, 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 or readdressing of, of the legacy of Blairism, when this sort of thing comes around, do, do you ever feel like you're having to kind of do your work again. How do you see that legacy that you? Oh well, I, 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 I gave up any hope of making any impact on the national mind a long time ago. I, people don't. People want to believe what they want to believe, and if it doesn't, uh, if it doesn't fit the, the facts, then uh, 
the hell with the facts. Uh, but uh, Blairism, whatever it was, and this we could have a whole other discussion on, uh, has now been wholly absorbed by and adopted by the Conservative Party, which is one of the reasons why the Conservative, why the Labour Party no longer has anything to do. Uh, it, it abandoned being what it was and became Blairite, and then Blairism was taken over much more effectively by much richer and cleverer people, and so they're left being the the second Blairite party and the poorer Blairite party and the Blairite party which has absolutely no uh, no MPs left in Scotland, which used to keep it going, and is therefore, unless some extraordinary cataclysm happens, politically finished. And so that. Uh, that that's that for me. But you've just r r raised in my mind the extraordinary thing, which again has is, is, is always puzzled me. How could Christopher, uh, who could see through most um, phonies at a thousand yards, how could he be so captivated by the Blair creature? And he was. They got on. Uh, it, it's uh, it, it's really it astonishes me, and this this nullity. Uh, <laughs> a, a man who who didn't understand even the movement he led or, or the, most of the speeches he made uh, could, could could have got got past the scrutiny, but he did, and there that just goes to show. I mean, I've, I've made terrible mistakes in my own life, but I, I've never made the mistake of not being able to see through Anthony Charles Linton Blair. What was the relationship yeah. actually like? Sorry, what, what was the relationship between Christopher and? Well, Blair, I, I think like? they were quite. They were on quite good terms, and you remember that the, the strange the, the Toronto debate. Uh, mm -hmm. This was not a debate between people who, who, who didn't get on with each other. He, he occasionally he, he he chided me for being lacking in enthusiasm for for the person he and I both referred to as Anthony. Yeah, right. So he he did the debate in Toronto with with Tony Blair on is uh, is Christianity good for the world or is religion good for the world? Maybe I think it was the second one, um, which which is I mean it is striking because I mean in the stuff that you know if you watch uh, if you watch Christopher talking about Blair the rare occasions that he did in nineteen ninety nine or two thousand. You know he did certainly didn't hate him or anything, but you know, but it, it, it was always a sort of vague like uh, implication that he didn't think much of him. Uh, whereas uh, certainly by the time that that debate happens, um, you know, in two thousand and nine or ten, maybe I'm not or ten. 10 it I was think, quite but, late on. Yeah, uh, but you know, by the time that yeah, I mean he, he you know was bald from from the chemo uh but by, by the time it it happened uh you know he he said in the debate right i mean they were debating religion but you know he, he there were a couple of comments where he's like oh you know but i do think you're a great statesman or you know something like that yeah. which, which which is exactly. which is kind of revolting to watch you know that that's you know tony blair uh, is a uh, is a great uh, is a great statesman and and all i could think is that uh you know, is because uh, Christopher was so wrapped up in uh, in this this these positions on Afghanistan and Iraq, which which he he you know which of course because so many of his his old comrades were were horrified by them, uh, he you know was that much more defensive about you know being able to point to somebody who's at least in the the you know the head of a historically nominally sort of social democratic uh party uh you know who's who's one of the uh, the major you know ringleaders 
uh, you know, must have been good for for his position. Although I'm also curious because your description that you know Blairism being taken up by the Tories is sort of an inversion of uh, certainly what we on the left often think, you know, about Thatcherism and uh, and and the Labour Party. In fact, what Margaret Thatcher herself is supposed to have said, right? You know, what was your greatest accomplishment? New Labour. Well, she's supposed to. Uh, yeah, maybe so. Uh, but it, it, that's another long and complicated discussion, and one of the many reasons why I'm not a Thatcherite. But it, I have to jump in there, Peter. My my favorite moment that I quote all the time, if you come up uh, from the last interview we did, is where I said something similar, and you replied. But I suppose you think Margaret Thatcher was a conservative, uh, which <laughs> well, there is that too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there was your first mistake, but yeah, no, it, it's it, it. There were other things. I remember him writing somewhere in in praise of him uh, for his Europeanness mm-hmm. as well. I, I think that his his critical faculties could, could be absolutely savage, but but sometimes would just suspend it. And it, it's the thing we all have to guard against. I mean, I try and make a rule. I never never to admire any person. You can admire an action. Uh, but the people will almost always let you down. But I think he let him. He just he he just let his guard down with Blair. And if if you can't stand Clinton, then why would you uh, why would you like Blair? Uh, it, it it seems to me. And if if Clinton as well came round as uh, over over the Yugoslav thing, he came round to intervention. Uh, so he would, if he'd, if he'd been around, if he'd, if he'd come a little bit later, if things had turned out differently, he would have, might well have been doing the things that George W. Mm. Bush was doing. So again, it, the, these are these are puzzles to me. The the the, the, the hostilities to Clinton and the liking for Blair are are, are oddities in, in in the whole thing, which which make it impossible to come up with a, a, a kind of consistent uh, yeah. I mean, one analysis. One... I mean, one difference it seems to me maybe with, with Clinton and Blair is that uh, actually, when did, when did Tony Blair become prime minister? I know it was like the late 90s. 90s. I mean, we, 97. we don't have a president. He became prime minister in 1997. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's a good, it's a, it's a, it's a good mistake <laughs> because I think he thought he was president. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so, I think a lot, of, a lot of other people thought he was president too, uh, but, he, <laughs> but, but he wasn't. But yeah, no, 1997. Yeah, so 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 that, that's running a campaign, which is which is basically a counterfeit of the of, of, of the Clinton campaign. Right, The song was "Things Can Only Get Better" instead of "Can't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow," but otherwise it was pretty much identical. Yeah, and and, Cut and paste. It seems like one difference between his reactions to those two cases, uh, besides the fact that he was in the United States and and you know more focused on America than British politics, uh, but one reaction what difference between the two cases might be that the Clinton years were a transitional period in his views on, on foreign policy that, uh, that for the most part, uh, he had been anti-interventionist before Bosnia, uh, that, that there was, you know, there was one previous exception, you know, but like, but for the most part, right. You know, he, he had interventionist views, uh, until, uh, until, you know, the wars of the former Yugoslavia, you know, started to change his mind about that. And, and so I think, I, I mean, as you point out, I think you're right that uh, his, that the on foreign policy, ultimately the difference between, you know, Clintonite and, uh, and, and, and Christopher's uh, foreign policy views 
didn't end up being that great, but because it was at that transitional period, you still find things like Christopher uh, really harshly attacking uh, the uh, the wag the dog uh, bombings of uh, Sudan and Afghanistan. Yeah, uh, I, but these these but these are really by comparison with with the, with, with the the shift towards intervention in in former Yugoslavia, these are these are small. The other thing which which would would puzzle me because I see this as enormous in the other direction. Clinton's intervention in Ireland mm-hmm. was one of the, was an absolutely enormous uh, political event, both in the United States and in Britain, uh, in a direction which I think Christopher would would normally have approved of very strongly. Mm-hmm. And and yet it didn't it, it didn't uh, and of course it was also something in which Blair was 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 deeply involved uh, and yet it didn't didn't seem to alter the case at all. I, 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 it's just it, it just nags uh, the inconsistency. The man who took his positions and who who liked Blair and disliked Clinton. It's just strange. Do you feel like you understand him less now, Peter? I'm comparing oh, the, I, I never, the tone you never, take in debate. Mm-hmm. Never claimed to understand him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't, wasn't ever trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did you? Did you feel he understood you? I have no idea. I don't think either of us was trying all that hard to understand the other one. Um, yeah, well, well I, I do remember in our, in, our, in, our, in, our, in our childhoods we were we were competing over a very small area of territory, which both of us thought the other one had too much of. And later on, so we'd gone largely our separate ways until, in a very, very strange way, uh, our, our completely separate, um, in my case, minor celebrity trajectories brought us together again in a way which I think either of us either expected or particularly wanted. There's a line in uh, The Importance of Being Earnest that uh, uh, no man ever mentions his brother. The subject seems to be distasteful to both, most men. Ah, well, maybe I don't. That I, I wouldn't put it like that. It's just to say we were, as I did once say, we had totally different tastes, uh, pleasures. Uh, we lived for, for the large part of our lives in different continents. And if we hadn't been brothers, uh, we'd never have met. And so it, it, it's fascinating experience to have to be to be pushed into the company of somebody totally different from you. Uh, as it were, willy nilly, uh, and uh, to be compelled to, to pay some attention to them, but it's uh, it, it is extremely strange. Well, Peter, we can't thank you enough uh, for sharing your uh, reflections uh, and ongoing um, interrogations of your your brother's <laughs> positions. Um, and uh, I, th- I think this is really going to be a very valuable view as uh, Ben's book seeks to reignite debates about Christopher Hitchens's legacy uh, on the left all right uh so uh we are going to uh go to the post game for patrons in a few minutes what's up (laughs) but meanwhile here's jen (laughs) so we thought for the philosophy segment uh this week uh we could uh talk about uh Somebody who I think is a uh, much less impressive member of the same group as uh, as Christopher Hitchens was in the 2000s, uh, Sam Harris, uh, who just tweeted this a couple of days ago. Do we have the... Uh... All right. 
This is Seb Harris on Twitter uh, on New Year's Eve. Question for fans of the is ought impasse in ethics. Why don't we have a similar problem with reasoning itself? Why aren't we tempted to worry, for instance, the fact that A is bigger than B doesn't allow us to say that we ought to believe that A is bigger than B. Now, um, I have seen a good number of people uh, on, on social media uh, say that this is word salad, that they have no idea what he's talking about. Uh, we can help with that. I do know what he's talking about, but he's still wrong and very confused. So to understand, I think, what's going on uh, with, uh, with Sam's latest thoughts about this, uh, you, uh, you have to get a big thing that, uh, that he's been pushing for years since he wrote a book called The Moral Landscape. Uh, I, I wrote an article about this a couple of years ago. It was called uh, The Problem with Sam Harris's Moral Theory. is one of the first things I wrote for Arc Digital Media. And a lot of the same ground is covered in the Sam Harris chapter of Michael Brooks's book, uh, Against the Web. Um, and basically, Harris believes that we can derive morality from science, or at least he says he believes this. He says it all the time. Uh, now he might be lying. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So the reason I say at least he says he thinks that is, isn't that I think he's lying uh it, it's just that i think he's so confused that um i'm not sure he's accurately described his own position but <laughs> um because you try to figure out what that means exactly to say that science could could tell us what's uh what's morally right and what's morally wrong uh the obvious problem uh going back to david hume uh, is the idea that there's this gap between is and ought. So what does that mean? Uh, that we can't get to what ought from what is. What ought. What, ought? <laughs> what we what ought, ought to do <laughs> from what is the case. Yeah. Uh, so anytime you have an ought conclusion, a moral or political conclusion, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about, about rights or obligations or what should happen. Uh, <laughs> I can't tell where I'm supposed to oh, be. Always gotta, oh, uh, that, so my eyes aren't like. <laughs> always got to. No, but that's, that was good. That was good. So, we, uh, so yeah, always got to make that gesture when you come <laughs> to a conclusion about what ought to happen. Uh, so um, anytime you do that, if it's going to be a valid argument, uh, you have to have an ought premise. So, for example, um, people will say like, um, I don't know, fetuses are human beings, therefore abortion is wrong. And you can understand what's going on in that argument. There is what we call an implied premise. Yeah, there we, <laughs> there we go. You ought not to kill human beings. Right, exactly. So, uh, but often, Something that we take to be so clear that we don't need to spell it out. Yeah, an enthymeme is the uh, is the fancy name for that. A uh, <laughs> argument where not all the premises are explicitly uh, spelled out, uh, and oftentimes you always got to get so fancy. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So oftentimes, <laughs> I'm not drunk. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Just loopy for the reasons. Uh, 
So oftentimes the reason we don't spell it out is we just think they're so obvious that you you sort of don't need to. It's 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 not, you know, it's not important. Uh, and surely some some moral arguments are like that. I think of the abortion case, if you read like Judith Jarvis Thompson talking about the sick violinist, that could make you question whether that premise is universally true, that implied premise. Uh, there are other ways of attacking that. Uh, but there, there are definitely cases where that's totally fine to do that, right? If, if I say uh, John is a bad person, and you say, why is John a bad person? Well, John is a bad person because he, uh, I don't know, Killed his, his mother. Because he killed his mother. Uh, <laughs> what up, Kathy? <laughs> so uh, you don't actually have to normally, in a normal conversation with human beings, you don't have to spell out uh, it's bad to kill your mother because we all just kind of take that for granted, you know, <laughs> uh, going through our lives, you know. You, uh, you can come up with an exception, but, you know, you know really the great, you know, as a as rule of thumb, you know, it's, it's definitely wrong uh, to... Uh, uh, to uh, to kill uh, uh, to to kill your mother, uh, but the the problem is that I think when Harris talks about this, right, you know, he says, "Oh, there's no there's no is ought gap." Well, why not? Well, he'll say things like, "Well, uh, we can just know from experience that certain things are bad." Uh, and that, and so you could just generalize from that. Uh, like he says, if you put your hand on a hot stove, that sucks. Uh, this is this is a direct quote from Sam Harris. Uh, that's uh, quoted that article. Uh, and uh, it's it's a little unclear whether he just means it like subjectively sucks for you, uh, <laughs> or it's objectively you know bad. Uh, but. I think the I think the kind of basic confusion that he has about this is that the sense in which he thinks you can get an ought from it is is a sense that nobody's actually denied. So, in other words, once you figure out what your like moral goals are, then empirical information, maybe from science, can certainly tell us things about how to get there. Like, if you say. Uh, I don't know. Like it's it's really um, it's really morally important uh, that we that we reduce poverty. That you can social science could tell you well these are the things that have worked or haven't worked in the past, and that, so that can help help tell you what to do. But that's only because you've already got a should go into the premise, and so that by itself doesn't doesn't really the science isn't telling you what's good or bad. Uh, it's just telling you how to achieve the things that you already think are are good. So when, when Harris uh, talks about this, another, another of his examples that he likes is about health. So it says, uh, well, health is a branch of science, right? And the same way people say, you know, Harris is basically utilitarian. Uh, he certainly seems to reason like one when he's, when he's reasoning about morality. Like, you know, he, he says at one point at the end of faith that um, it would be, it would be acceptable hypothetically to do a preemptive nuclear strike uh, if there was a. Nuclear. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
uh, <laughs> there was an Islamic fundamentalist nation that was uh, on its on the verge of getting a nuclear bomb, uh, and uh, and so that's like a pretty extreme utilitarian bullet to to bite, right? That you can that you can intentionally kill millions and millions of people uh, in order to prevent something worse possibly from from happening later. Uh, so he, you know, he thinks that's just obviously right. And so similarly says, yeah, you could question whether utilitarianism, he doesn't use the word, I think, to describe his view, but that's clearly his view, uh, whether utilitarianism is right. But, you know, that doesn't mean that science can't tell us what's right and wrong because uh, health is a science and you could question, well, is living longer really, you know, uh, really healthy? Maybe the healthy thing is to live, you know, a shorter life or whatever. And, you know, people could say silly things like that. But we can put that. I have fatal gangrene. I'm just as well off as you are. Yeah, but we don't. And so we have a science of health. Therefore, uh, you know, we that says, you know, here are the things you ought to do to be healthy. So there's no is on distinction. How does that argument strike you? Oh, uh, pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know what else you want me to say. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, I think what is missing there is that medicine is a science, but if we're talking about what counts as healthy, then I don't know, maybe there are actual philosophical issues there that you can't settle with, with science that, uh, you know, that certainly uh, there was a point in the past when the DSM included homosexuality as a psychiatric disorder and I don't think that was taken out primarily because we got a bunch of new empirical scientific information about the causes of homosexuality or anything like that. It was more a normative issue. Like, you know, we no longer think this is bad, right? So we're, so we're no longer interested in trying to stop people, you know, from having uh, same-sex uh, attraction. Uh, so, and and that seems like more of a political victory, you know, for the gay rights movement than, than anything one way or the other about, about psychology psychiatry as a as a science so so you could so it could be there are philosophical issues about what counts as healthy but yeah for the most part we think that the guy with fatal gangrene uh isn't as healthy as the you know whatever 25 year old marathon runner you know who who doesn't have any serious medical conditions uh but so you basically yeah yeah i've obviously just described myself uh (laughs) taking no questions on that one so so in this tweet, um, if you've forgotten the full brilliance of it, let's get it again. <laughs> Question for fans of the is on impasse and ethics. Why don't we have a similar problem with reason itself? We aren't tempted to worry, for example, that the fact, well, basically that something is true is a reason to believe it. And there are a couple, and I think that there are a couple of ways you could push back against this uh, or explain what's wrong with this. Uh, one of them that I've seen some people um, who are like friends from like grad school friends, philosophy friends uh, do is say, say, well, actually, uh, oh, those people are annoying. <laughs> you know, there are all of these, you know, philosophical questions about, you know, about when you should, you know, when you, when you ought to believe something 
And what if something is true, but you don't have any evidence for it? Or what if something's true, but you just don't care very much about it? You know, do, uh, do we have a, do we have an epistemic obligation to sit around all day forming true beliefs about every blade of grass, you know, in the, in the lawn? And I think these are all good points, but also I say this with love. I, I think the people that I'm talking about are kind of missing the main problem. That's uh, that's going on here. Like, you don't say. Like I think they, I think there's such a thing as being like a little bit too much of a philosopher about this stuff, uh, and, uh, which is yeah okay. There are. It's not technically a hundred percent true that full stop no qualifications. You should believe true things for all the reasons we just said. But like these are all like caveats and nuances and basically we all think that you should try to believe true stuff and not believe false stuff yeah sure you know if you're into that right sure so uh like the idea that like rationality so that the norms of rationality the the shoulds of rationality are basically about like truth as a goal and avoidance of falsehood as a goal is not actually super controversial among like 99.999% of human beings 99.999% of the time, right? There's the thing that Cicero says about how there's no proposition so absurd that no philosopher has denied it, you know, has, has Ain't that the it. Truth. and so yes, you can come up with people who deny this stuff. Don't, don't commit me with that, but they, <laughs> but like, basically that's not super controversial, but the mistake Harris is making is he says, well, look, we could just help ourselves to, this fact that something is true being a reason that we should believe it. So therefore we can get oughts from is. Uh, and I think what he's missing is that you're still, you're still using an ought premise there. It's just unstated because it's not very interested. Like you should believe true stuff is still an implied premise of the inference from such and such is true. You should believe it. It's just a really boring premise because and you don't really need to spell it out because we all kind of take that for granted whereas like his you know the same way that like okay you know medicine is a science but that doesn't mean that like what counts as healthy is an issue that science you know science can tell us about uh, in fact uh cop mix uses an example the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals that the same medical knowledge that would tell you a doctor how to cure somebody could also tell them how to like poison them so they'll be well for find out and science certainly can't tell you which one to do, right? Like that's a that's a, a normative decision. So it's like, yeah, there is still a gap between something is true and you should believe it. It's just that the gap, the the normative premise that gets you across that gap is really obvious and uninteresting. Whereas like the kind of normative premise that Harris wants to help himself to is like utilitarianism is true, which sure. is a lot less obvious that you should try to believe true stuff. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I think, uh, I think Kant greater than simple Sam Harris. I think that's the takeaway. <laughs> I suppose I can get behind that. <laughs>